the radical left, the Marxists, the anarchists, the agitators, the looters, and people who, in many instances, have absolutely no clue what they are doing. Welcome to What Radicalized You, a podcast of stories and experiences that have shaped people's ideas about our world and the way society should function. I'm Vinay Krishnan, he, him, his pronouns. And I'm currently the national field organizer for the Center for Popular Democracy. CPD does all kinds of different things, but specifically I work on their healthcare campaigns. So that's a Medicare for All campaign, a uh, opioid network which combats the overdose crisis, a campaign to lower prescription drug prices. We recently launched a new COVID families campaign to organize families who are directly impacted by COVID. So that's kind of my day job at CPD, and then outside of that, I work as like a freelance writer for a couple different magazines. I have published some short fiction, some short nonfiction essays. I also volunteer as a mental health advocate for the International OCD Foundation and the National Alliance on Mental Illness. I think I have two specific instances that kind of radicalized me, but as a disclaimer, I would I would say that, you know, growing up in America with a disability is enough to radicalize you. You don't necessarily need a specific event. Just growing up specifically as a South Asian, growing up in New York after 9-11 with a mental illness, with a disability, I think that in itself, just navigating life with those conditions is enough to radicalize you in this country. But I do have some more specific answers. I think the first one that I would definitely point to, I developed a sort of friendship with Daniel Berrigan. Daniel Berrigan was one of the most well-known anti-Vietnam War protesters. He's a Jesuit priest who famously, with eight other people, including his brother, he broke into a draft board in Catonsville, Maryland, and burned close to 400 draft files of soon-to-be draftees so they couldn't be conscripted into the army. This was in 1968, I think, and they made homemade napalm to do it, and there was a big national trial after, and him and his brother eluded capture, and there were these kind of like radical priests, fugitives from the law, they're on the FBI's most wanted list, and they kind of sparked a whole kind of anti-war movement during the Vietnam War. He brought back the first POWs who were released during the war. He went to Hanoi with Howard Zinn. So he's kind of this legendary activist figure, And I met him when I was in, I think, 11th grade. Yeah, 11th grade and 12th grade. My English teacher had a friendship with him back in high school, and he lived in New York. And she selected me to kind of organize his trip to our high school. So I spoke with him on the phone a couple of times. We exchanged letters back and forth for a while, and I met him twice in person. I went to Manhattan, picked him up, and drove him back to my high school, and kind of developed a friendship. And... For a while afterwards, I would like write him letters, like asking him questions about, you know, justice in America, and he would respond. So just that whole kind of encounter really radicalized me. The story that Daniel likes to tell a lot is that when he was a kid, I think he was four years old, a 
man knocked on his house door. His mom answered the door, and it was a stranger. He seemed kind of, you know, disheveled and haggard, and his mom didn't really ask any questions. She just welcomed him in, gave him a warm meal, and then kind of sent him on his way. You know, 10 minutes later, the police knock on the door. The police asked, you know, where the man was. He was escaped from prison nearby, and they wanted to know where he was. So the mom was like, oh, yeah, I just I just saw him. He was just here. He went off in that direction, and she pointed off, like, to her right, and the police ran off in that direction, and the guy had actually gone off in the opposite direction, to the left, right? So the mom was misleading the police, and Daniel would joke that that was his first act of civil disobedience, watching his mom do that. So a story like that, like if you heard that today, especially in today's climate, it maybe wouldn't be that surprising. But hearing that when I was, you know, 17 years old, that was pretty formative. Daniel would pass on all these lessons to me about distrusting police, distrusting prisons, distrusting capitalism, distrusting the military industrial complex, glorification of war, just kind of all these fundamental ideas that I believe now all kind of started with those conversations. He would write me these letters, and these are like original writings that I think I'm the only one who has them. He wrote me this long essay about friendship, and he talks about like what our mission as people should be. And he's talking about this in like interpersonal terms, but I think like what he's really getting at is that like our government should act this way, not just people. Here's a, a quote of his that I like. He says, the measure of our humanity is this, to make friends, to make friends with all the living, to make friends with a stranger at the gate, the undocumented, the illegals, with street people, with mental patients, with those at the bottom of the imperial pyramid, the despised and the feared and the forgotten, with criminals and yuppies and tyrants and victims. We shall undertake this work of friendship or we shall all likewise perish. I thought that was very moving. And again, it's kind of framed in interpersonal terms, but it's like, well, what would a society look like if it actually codified those values into law? And it would look nothing like the country we have right now. It would look like, you know, defunding the police and investing in clean energy and Medicare for all and all these things that we're trying to work towards. One more quote from him that I like to keep in mind is he said to me, war is blasphemy against the God of life and love. You expand that beyond just military war. Like if you look at the systems America erects, you know, you see war everywhere, right? You see war on black and brown people, war on people with disabilities, on the poor, on immigrants, on women, on queer folk, on anyone who this society declares to be non-normative in any way. So in that sense, America like itself is blasphemy, you know, against the God of life and love. And so the country doesn't need incremental reforms, it needs transformation, it needs a reckoning. So all those ideas were kind of baked into my head pretty early on. Again, I feel like even without these experiences, I still would have been radicalized if you want to use that word, but definitely meeting him as kind of legend of activism, someone who'd been arrested like dozens and dozens and dozens of times, I think that definitely forecasted me engaging in civil disobedience years later and getting arrested and believing in these ideas that America considers to be radical, even though I consider them to be just very sensible and not particularly radical at all. It kind of raises this whole paradox about this country, like in America, interpersonal kindness is a virtue, you know, it's like being neighborly, like everyone values that. But systemic kindness from the government is like an unthinkable sin to so many people, right? 
like a government, like especially during COVID, a government should rather let its people die of hunger and disease than just spend money on food or medicine, spend money on letting businesses, you know, close and stay home and we'll support you through it. Like we should invest in criminalizing homelessness rather than just ending homelessness and investing in housing. You know, like there's just such these giant contradictions that the kind of interpersonal values we have, like we don't value that from our government. I mean, I certainly do, at least like more than half of our country does. And it's not just Republicans, right? Because even the Democratic Party, the neoliberal Democratic Party doesn't particularly value that either. So I think that's the first thing that radicalized me, meeting him. I think the second one is just growing up with a severe mental illness radicalized me because, I mean, most of my work is healthcare work, and I think I was drawn to it because I grew up with this illness. I have a, a very severe form of obsessive compulsive disorder and major depression and suicidal ideation. I would say it became debilitating when I was 13 and I was diagnosed and started going into treatment when I was 24. So that's 11 years growing up with this illness, like not understanding what it is, not knowing it had a name, not getting treatment for it. And that's just like so common in America and it's even more common for people from brown and black communities. So much of that is cultural stigma, so much of it is structural barriers, ableism, capitalism, all these barriers to care. So yeah, like you grow up 11 years not understanding yourself, kind of thinking you're some sort of monstrous person, some sort of freak, like you understand that there's something wrong with you. And then 11 years later, a doctor says, no, you're not a monster, you just have an illness and it's treatable. And it's great, it's very validating, but like you can't unflip that switch, you know, when you grow up with your formative years thinking you're lesser than and that you're monstrous, that like alienation is baked into you. So a lot of what I'm driven by is, well, instead of 11 years, what if it was three years or like three months or a couple of weeks where I, you know, went untreated? What would my life look like? You know, how much healthier would I have been? What choices could I have made? So a lot of my mental health advocacy is trying to lower that, you know, 11 year gap for kids today who are, have symptoms and don't know what to do about it. Part of that is combating stigma, which I kind of do like through my writing. I write lots of mental health stories and but then also like this, the structural barriers, which I do like through CPD's work and trying to fight for Medicare for all and lower prescription drug prices and combating the overdose epidemic, which obviously has a huge mental health overlap. As my day job, structurally trying to combat ableism and then like weekends and nights trying to write about mental health stigma and trying to normalize these conversations. That is actually how I came to CPD in the first place because I think it was 2017 when the Republicans first tried to repeal the ACA. So we all descended on DC. I got an invite because I knew some people over at CPD. And I just went down as a volunteer, just as a protester. I engaged in civil disobedience. I was between jobs at the time. And like I told my mental health story, we did sit-ins in senators' offices, got arrested a couple of times. We just kept going back week after week till we convinced Collins, Murkowski, and McCain to protect the ACA. And I just kept going back, action after action after that, and I just stuck around and <laughs> bothered people until they hired me. So that's how like I got in the door was through like telling my mental health story, and now like I'm co-leading all the healthcare campaigns. I've always been driven by that idea. It's actually like said pretty well and concisely in The Great Gatsby, which I guess is a strange source of this, but there's a line in there, there is no difference among men of race or intelligence so profound as the difference between the sick and the well. 
and I like firmly believe that to be true. I feel like ableism is, I think, like my big structural antagonist that I'm trying to deconstruct, and like it's amazing in all these conversations, even like in movement spaces, like with organizers and activists, how often they leave ableism off the list of evils in America. Like they talk about capitalism and they talk about racism and they just don't address ableism and it's just so strange to me that you can even like begin to discuss capitalism without ableism. I think you can like expand the idea of ableism. I feel like it kind of is the ism that encompasses every other ism because like in America it's not just about illnesses and injuries, it's also who you love and how you pray and the color of your skin and what country you come from. Like if you're not a white, straight, cisgendered male, then you're kind of essentially disabled in this country. Like America views you as being not normative, as being an other, and you're deserving of, you know, being plundered from and put into a box or put into a cage and not having the same access to healthcare or housing or even voting rights. So I kind of approach it that way. So when people talk about racism and sexism and homophobia, I think it's all a form of ableism. Um, so it's, you know, one story, not like 50 stories. Obviously, each story has its own distinct challenges, but like it's the same root white supremacist evil that governs everything. I think just like directly confronting that every single day of my entire life radicalized me. In terms of like doing this healthcare work, people like will ask me like, who are they to kind of get involved? Like why, you know, why should I talk to my representative or why should I be on these calls that you're doing? Because they are always intimidated because they think like, oh, well, I'm not a policy expert or a legal expert. So, you know, this isn't really my fight. And in terms of the healthcare work, like if you have a personal story, like if you have a healthcare story, then you're an expert on that story. And that's all you really need to be in order to do this work. Like if you, if you have, if you're an expert on your own story, like you can go to your representative and tell that story and make a specific demand. And if you do that methodically, strategically over and over again, you can bring about change. So. People listening to this, they're not sure how to work towards Medicare for all. Like if you've been affected by this healthcare system in America, which I'm sure you have, then that's really all you need. And like, we can help you do the rest. So reach out, send me an email, send me a text, send me a tweet or a DM or whatever. And you know, we can plug you in because we need an army of storytellers to transform our healthcare system. So, you know, if you're sick, you can see a doctor. And next time a pandemic comes, no one, no one is left behind. That's the world we're trying to create.